0: To Steve Balton. You are tuned into My Turning Point, where this week, really fun conversation with Jeremiah Freitz of The Lumineers, talking about his solo instrumental album, Piano Piano. We also talk about Dave Grohl, the Lumineers, much more. So hope you enjoy this one as much as we did. Thanks. So for you, did The Piano Album come out
1: of this, or was it something that you always intended to do? So... I mean, just in general, it was weird. 2020 was probably by far the most creative year of my entire life. And in a lot of ways, it was probably also the most difficult, just mentally dealing with um, so much time at home, isolation, worrying about the global pandemic. But uh, the solo album that I released, uh, Piano Piano, was something that was kind of in the works for the better part of a decade. Um, I always knew that I wanted to record an album that was like revolved around a solo or revolved around a piano, grand piano, upright piano. And then um, last year when COVID-19 really became what it became, um, I was on tour with the Lumineers, um, a band that I co-founded 15 years ago with a singer. We were doing about a month and a half on the road. It got cut short. We missed about You know, canceled about two shows and then the rest of the year got canceled, obviously. And got back to Denver, Colorado, where I was living at the time. And my wife was like, she actually was the one that urged me to say, you know, you should really record this album now. And uh, I was sort of like, "Eh, I really want to record in in a professional studio. You know, I really wanted to do it in a professional way. And um, that became pretty apparent that I would not be able to do that. And just because there was no studios around that were sort of taking COVID precaution into uh, account. So um, I did it in my house, it took about three months and uh, sort of like the best worst thing that I ever did. Um, just because doing it in a house was very kind of crazy, <laughs> but now to answer your question, it wasn't so much that I made the album Because of COVID-19 or anything like that, but uh, in a weird roundabout way, it, uh, you know, afforded me all this extra time. And uh, I had actually planned on recording it in probably late 2022 when the Lumineers were going to be done with their touring. And then when our tour got canceled, um, it just seemed like the best time to do it.
0: Interesting. So you were planning on it, but that's kind of what I was getting at a little bit with the timing, too, is that that's what I was, you know, a lot of artists have found. Because, like, I talked about it with, I believe it was Tim McGraw, and I talked about it with a couple other people. You know, typically when you're in a major act like the Lumineers, or you're a major act like Tim McGraw or whatever, you work on a traditional album tour cycle, and there's very yeah. little downtime. So you had planned on it at the end of 2022. So even though you had planned on the record, you would not have had the time to do it, though, if not for the fact that it was COVID. So
1: it kind of did give yeah. you the creative freedom, at least in terms of the time to do it. And then, you know, a lot of the songs were already written. I mean, the oldest song on the album is probably, uh, I think it's track five called Nearsighted. I recorded that 13 or 14 years ago for the most part. And um, in my little dorm room, I studied abroad in Kingston upon Thames in England at the time. Okay, And uh, I recorded the guitar part in the little tiny hole in my laptop speaker. I came home late one night after a pub and I never thought I'd ever do anything with that guitar idea. And then some of the songs are not as old. They're like seven or eight years old. And then um, a handful of the songs got written last year while I actually you know, sat down and hyper-focused on making the album. Well, now, it's so okay, let's
0: take this back then to the turning point because I kind of was wondering if the turning point for the album tied in with this. But, you know, first, let's do your turning point moment and then we'll come on to what perspective this gave you and especially moving to Italy. I'm sure you've had a lot of change.
1: I mean, I think... In terms of my turning point, just as a musician, as an artist, I would say that um, me and the singer West, we started the Lumineers about 15 years ago. And uh, we grew up in a little town called Ramsey, New Jersey, North New Jersey. And it was pretty close to New York City, relatively speaking. And I remember that we played a small kind of shitty gig at a place called the Lion's Den in the village. And I remember that you know, maybe like five or six people came out at the time we were using MySpace. We were using uh, evite.com. We had a huge uh, list of emails of all of our friends and friends of friends that we'd email every time to say, please come to the show. And I remember we played a gig almost to nobody. There was probably more people on stage than in the crowd. And I remember, you know, this was back in the day before we had any sort of success, obviously. So um, when you finish the show, you sort of like, all right, thanks. And then, you know, you're packing up your own drum set, you're packing up your own instruments. And I remember being on the Lions End stage, it was sort of this like grimy, beer-soaked, sticky, disgusting stage, wrapping up my patch cables, my quarter inches, unplugging the Boss tuner and like the Line 6 delay pedal. And I just remember, I was on my knees in like beer-soaked stage and just remember thinking like, wow, I feel at home. Like this is so, this is something I want to do for the rest of my life. I don't care if I ever make money. I don't care if I ever, you know, become successful. That was, I was like, you know, probably 19, 20 at the time, but I truly felt like, wow, this is, this is where I'm meant to be. It was this kind of epiphany where I looked out crowd, didn't really see anybody, but I just kind of felt like, huh, this feels right <laughs> in some weird random way. And, uh, you know, music for me is one of those things that I've always been obsessed with and it's never been, it's never waned in my excitement or my obsessiveness. Like maybe when I was younger, I'd get into golf for like a month or I'd get into, I'm going to learn tricks on a bicycle or this or that. And music I've always felt very obsessed with and kind of addicted to and all that. And it's never, uh, thankfully, you know, knock on wood, it's never truly gotten out of my system. I'm still very fascinated by it. I'm still very humbled by it. And, uh, yeah. It's so interesting. Do you
0: remember, well, there's a lot of directions to go with that. Do you remember the first song that you heard that had that where it sort of uh, jump-started that interest in you? Like being a kid and that song you heard where you were recognized like, oh shit, this is something that like just ignited that spark.
1: So growing up in New Jersey, uh, we were like the only family not to have cable TV, which was kind of a big deal. Like, I don't know, like growing up, like just kids and friends and friends of friends, they don't have cable TV. And we're, me, you know, I felt like we were the only person in the whole world that didn't have cable TV. So we had channels two through 13. So we obviously didn't have like MTV and all that stuff, BH1. And, um, but I remember when me and my brother and my parents, we would go to my, my grandmother's house in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. She had cable TV and me and my brother, we'd run upstairs and we turn on MTV and there was just so many songs and so many music videos that we saw. It kind of felt like this taboo thing that we weren't really allowed to like watch MTV or something like that. And we were. And you know, I remember if I had to choose one, which is difficult, I'd probably choose maybe "Everlong" by the Foo Fighters. I mean, I remember hearing those drums coming through the tiny tiny television set. I remember seeing the music video with the giant hand. I remember just how cool that music video was. It's still like you know, it's such a such a cool video to this day. And uh, I still feel like that song you know, it was one of the biggest influences on my life in terms of you sort of jump starting, like, wow, I want to play drums. Like what the hell is coming through the speakers right now? This is sort of that, you know, what is that? And, you know, even when I got drums years later, that's like one of the worst songs to start on because it's so difficult, but <laughs> I'd have to choose like one of those moments as, as that moment, like probably turning on MTV and seeing that music video for the first time and just being like, wow, like, because you don't even understand music when you first get into it. You're just sort of like, what is that? It's almost like watching a car wreck on the side of the road or on the other hand, like watching something beautiful and you're like, you're young and you're impressionable and you're like, what is that? I want to learn more about that. But then the TV turns off and you go back downstairs and then you're like, you don't have, it's not like today when you have your phone or the internet is readily available where you can like, oh, what is that? Oh, I love that. And then you can watch it a billion times it was more like not to be like back then it was like this but you know back then you saw something and then maybe you saw it the next day or maybe you saw it a month later you didn't really know the next time you'd hear or see the same piece of media so yeah You know
0: what's so cool about that though? A lot of it, but it's interesting because you said okay so Lumiere started what about 15 years ago? 15-16 years ago now? Yeah What's interesting about this, and, and it's funny because, you know, I've, I've spoken to Dave a thousand times, you know, I've spoken with like Incubus, Red Hot Chili Peppers about, you know, when you take a break from something or how it reinvigorates. So I'm sure for you, you know, the love of music, as you say, it never wanes. But getting this opportunity to do piano, piano and doing something totally different, have you found that it also is something that reinvigorates you musically? And and even if, it, even if your love for the Lumineers had never waned, just you know, getting to explore a different side as an artist is just something that's exciting. So doing this record, did you find that it really sort of, uh, you know, reignited a passion you, or just excited you to get to explore something totally different?
1: I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. It really reinvigorated me as a person, as a musician. I think that it, I felt like I was, I felt like I cut my teeth again um, being a musician because I was like, I was alone in Denver making it. I worked uh, remotely with this guy named David Barrett who co-produced and co-engineered the album. But he was all the way over in the New York State, so we were doing like FaceTime and that type of thing. But, excuse me, there were many hours of the day, obviously, where I was by myself listening to hundreds of voice memos that I had collected over the years in a Dropbox folder. And I sort of like probably took the best, I don't know, 50 voice memos that I found from Dropbox. And I wrote each song idea on a piece of like yellow legal pad and I put it all on the floor. And I'd go on the stairs and I'd look at all 50 of them and I'd say, oh, that could be a verse, that could be a chorus. And I'd start to mix and match. And um, you know, being 15 years in a band, me and the singer Wesley, we write all the music together, uh, we work on it all together. And um, you know, we make a lot of decisions together. So this was the first time where it was like, I really was like the buck stop with me and only me. You know, this was a solo endeavor. And making all these decisions I think it really made me you know a better producer and a better musician because you know there's no waiting around it's like it's done when you say it's done and it's done when you put the work into it so um it was funny when I actually finished the record and started writing again for the stuff with Wes he said something to me like along the lines of like wow you should do another solo record like you seem to be very uh, you know like switched on creatively and I felt that way I felt like it was something that and, you know, we talked about this and he put out a really beautiful solo album, too, where he did a bunch of covers and really beautiful and, you know, really like proud of that, that he did that, too. And, you know, we had long conversations about this feels like a healthy thing to do where we put out three LPs together as Lumineers. We're super proud of that work. And this felt like something that, you know, I think the biggest, the, one of the worst things that either of us could do would be to put out something that could be a great Lumineer song, but not as a Lumineer song. And I think that would be, you know, we've sort of talked about that. We sort of put that on the table, like, hey, like, let's try to avoid that. And uh, I think with my solo album, it really felt like none of the songs could have been Lumineer songs, but also there was sort of a yearning within me internally that I wanted to still work on them. I still wanted to give them the light of day. And uh, so, yeah, it wasn't like, you know, finishing and completing this album didn't feel like something small had occurred inside me I felt like it was a monumental like affirmation or something of like wow this is felt really healthy to do it was really fun to do it was really difficult to do and uh yeah it kind of made me step back when it was all done like mixed mastered done I was really proud of it and thought like wow it was you know a lot of work and when I listen to it now I'm sort of like wow I don't remember actually putting all that time and effort into it but got done somehow so yeah it was cool See, I love this analogy as you talked about reinvigorating you and
0: reinvigorated, like, you know, do you feel like it takes you back to being on stage at the lion's den?
1: It kind of feels like it has that same feel. I feel like it got, yeah, it got me back down to like, I don't know. I've always thought about this. It's like the older I get, the more music I put out, the more music I work on. It's like when you're, when you're starting out, someone's like trying to teach you how to like draw a circle or like a simple shape, like a fundamental shape. And then as you start to get better at drawing, you're trying to draw like faces and maybe architecture and landscape and all this other stuff. And then it's like, at some point after like 10, 15, 20 years, you're like, I want to draw a circle again, right? I want to (laughs) draw a triangle and I want to do like a dance, like a fucking awesome triangle, a fucking awesome circle or something. And I felt like with this music, um, it can come across complex at times, I think. But at the end of the day, it was just, yeah, like trying to, you know, like find that love of just piano and when i was really young listening to like classical music and you know getting influenced by the foo fighters on the other hand the first music i really got influenced by was beethoven stuff that my mom had bought a cd from years ago and i was really in love with classical music and somewhere in between the foo fighters and classical music i developed um like a barometer for what i really loved to to create and uh yeah i think this album piano piano harked back to that, just like making simple chords, simple shapes. And I think that arguably, even if a song feels complex, um, it all started from a very like basic, fundamental, um, simple idea, I think. So.
0: Well, it's interesting because, you know, this goes back to, two when you were talking about being on stage at the Lions' Den, and obviously then since then, you know, there's five or six people there, you know, and, but you yeah. felt comfortable being on that sweaty stage. And then, of course, Lumineers gets to the point where you're headlining Red Rocks and you know Hollywood Bowl and places of this stature. And you're doing everything, but he's doing everything for you. And you're huge and there's no sweaty stage anymore. Mm-hmm. You know. Sure. So, I mean, I'm sure it's enjoyable. It's like when you look at the Stones or Springsteen or these huge artists who go and play little venues, like getting back to that thing, because it takes you back to what you first fell in love with.
1: I think that can be the most detrimental thing that can happen to an artist too is not putting yourself back in those vulnerable positions where if you never, even like attending live music, even if it's, even if you're going to see a band at the Hollywood Bowl, you know, a big place, I think even just the physical act of not being backstage and maybe trying to find parking and trying to wait in line, even if you're on the guest list, you still have to wait in some sort of line, you know, whatever it might be and realizing like, Wow, this is what we do for other people. like people take time out of the day, they find a babysitter or they do whatever they do. they buy the tickets and they buy beer and maybe drugs for the whatever you know they, they buy dinner <laughs> they go and they go into the show they see it and uh it's like it's like you know for them it's like one of their biggest nights out of that year, hopefully, if it's a good show and uh you know something about that, yeah, trying to like stay in touch with that feeling or artistically trying to stay in touch with like still doing things yourself and being vulnerable and remembering that. Um, yeah. I don't know. I guess just like the day that you become kind of like set the mode on uh, cruise control is probably the day that you start to sort of slide into the abyss of uh, a not good territory, you know, creatively. So, Well, it's
0: funny. Cause I talk about this with artists all the time too. And I don't care how big you are, you know, like you still have, you can never lose that sense of fandom, you know, and I think that's what you're talking about is kind of the same thing. So all right, I'll ask you then. What was the last moment that you geeked out meeting someone, that that fandom?
1: Hmm. It's a good question. Let me think. Um the last moment maybe it's someone geeking out. I haven't I haven't, I haven't like seen anybody in so long. You're like, wait, now, once think. upon a time
0: there were live shows that I actually met people in person.
1: And are we talking about like a celebrity or like some, like a, a musician that I'm like, wow, I, I'm really in love with? Whoever. Music. Like, I
0: mean, like I've geeked out meeting Sydney Poitier, was incredible. Wow. But also, obviously, you know, like BB King. You know, so uh, the point being is that everyone, no I, mean, any, how, I was just going to say, sorry, I, the, how, how successful you are, there's always someone who is above you that you still never lose that, you know, like,
1: oh shit. I think one of the coolest moments and I don't know why Dave Grohl seems to be popping up so much in this uh, discussion but probably probably meeting Dave Grohl um, on our first album we got to perform our song "Ho oh Hey at the Grammys. This was years ago and uh, I remember me and Wes we were doing like press junking on the red carpet and um, the night before the televised Grammys there's this sort of historic um, um, blanking on the party. It's like a party and a really famous Glad producer have- kind of yeah, Clive Davis, you know, like party and um, very Party's few artists Gala, get to yeah. play that. Yeah, that was super cool. We got to perform and we performed our song, oh Hey, there as well the night before the televised Grammys. And uh, we were playing, and I used like a crash cymbal in the song, at least I used to when I played it live many years ago. And so I'm sta- I like stand up for that song, but then I hit the crash cymbal with the tambourine. It's very like kind of a strange thing to do. And I was having a lot of trouble with the crash cymbal stand where um it kept dropping and like during the song i'd have to keep time and like raise it back up and you know every time it fell down i, I actually I remember seeing uh dave Grohl and taylor hawkins like right there sitting at the table you know the drummer and dave and i think fast forward to the next day on that sunday actually doing the televised grams and doing the red carpet press junket and all that um, i remember like getting like a love tap on my behind and it was Dave Grohl. And he was like, yo, what's up, man? Like, you know, you guys said something like, you guys are awesome. And he was like, your crash cymbal kept falling down. And if it fell down one more time, me and Taylor, we were going to run on stage and hold it up for you. And I was like, Oh my God, like <laughs> I should have just not touched it. Like how fucking cool would that have been if Dave Grohl and or Taylor ran up on stage and held it for me. And, um, he was super cool. Like, you know, uh, just meeting him. It was such this like, And I know, you know, it sounds like you've talked to him dozens or hundreds of times, and everybody that meets him says the same thing. He's really cool. And he's just this like vivacious lightning bolt of positivity and realness. And, um, you know, that was, yeah, that was a pretty crazy moment. It wasn't like, oh, cool. It was Dave Grohl. I couldn't really control it. It was like, oh, wow, holy shit. Like, you know, he he acknowledged my presence or something. And uh, so, yeah, that was pretty cool.
0: My favorite Dave story, I have so many Dave stories, but this to me is the best Dave. Well, I've got two. It's a two-part Dave story because it all ties into the same thing. We were on red carpet at Music Cares, which I'm sure you've done several times since, right? Sure, sure. And yeah. it was a, It is. It's a great event and for a great cause. And I knew Dave. And at that point, we're friends already. And he comes up and we're standing there talking. And he's like, um, oh, and he's like, that's her. Oh my God. That's the only one. I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? And he's like, Bonnie Raitt. He's like, I've never met her. That's the only one. And I'm like, well, you have something in common. You know, she just released a cover right down the line and you did Baker Street, both Jerry Rafferty songs. And he's like, see, ya, hits me on the shoulder and runs away. <laughs> like he was so excited, but was so awesome. I was with a Grammy camp student. I used to teach music journalism at Grammy camp. I had a student with me, right. Who had been, um, and he, this was the, This was the music has tribute to Paul McCartney. This fucking kid, great kid. Uh, He met, you know, Yoko Ono. He met James Taylor. He met everyone, right? But he was super bummed to get not meeting to meet, about not getting to meet Grohl. So we're inside the convention center now. You know what a mob scene that is. There's probably a thousand people around Dave. I tap Dave on the shoulder and I'm like, hey, this is Julian. He's a high school student. Before I can even finish the sentence, Dave grabs his hand. He's like, Hey, how's Grammy Week going for you? What do you th-? just locks in hundred percent on the kid, you know, and cool. I'm like, you yeah. are the coolest guy in the world for, you know, acknowledging the kid and just totally locking in on him. So yes, you know, he really is that cool guy.
1: No, really, and it means, you know, it's such a small gesture in, in relative to, to Dave's level of energy and it means the world. And it's like, these people will remember that for the rest of their life. So it really is uh, special and super cool. You know, because it's always
0: interesting when you're writing, right? And for Pianos Pianos, as you say, it's funny because even if it seems, you know, complex or whatever, like, you know, writing is still a very subconscious thing. So when you were writing this album or when you go back and listen to it as a whole, are there things on there that kind of surprised you or pieces of music that you kind of were like, oh, interesting, I didn't know that it was going to take shape that way? So
1: the oldest song on the idea, the oldest idea on the album by far, is the song called Nearsighted. I think, like I said, I think I recorded the main guitar piece 13 or 14 years ago. And then a few years ago, I added some drums to it. And then just last year, when I actually finished it, I added a bunch of strings and some piano to it. And there was something about that song that it was like, the older the song, the more I wanted to make sure I kept it intact. And it was, it was kind of like it was a kind of a rule I had in my head. It was a made up arbitrary rule, but there was something about it where I thought, well, if I was writing this 10 years ago or seven years ago, or even four years ago, I was probably like locked into some sort of like meditative, like I was, I was you know, attracted or being drawn to this uh, idea, this, this way to write it. And I might write it differently. Had I like tried to make it quote unquote better today, but there was something about, I wanted to preserve it. Now, I wouldn't, you know, some of the ideas I was like, well, this is 10 years ago. This is actually categorically like shitty. I'm not just going to like preserve a shitty idea because like that would sound cool in an interview or something. It was like, I, you know, I would change some things if I didn't think I would do that today. But for the most part, I would, it was kind of cool to listen to some stuff and be like, wow, I really like that. I have no idea how to play that. So some of the, some of the time spent days or weeks cumulatively were like, trying to learn some of these ideas that I had written five years ago, seven years ago and trying to be like, wow, that was really cool. I don't remember what the hell I was doing or what shapes I was making with my fingers and hands, but trying to like almost learn my own material. And I don't keep sheet music. I keep a very like, um, strange style of sheet music. It's like, uh, I write my own form. So if I was lucky enough to find that, it would at least help me like maybe 50% of the way. But yeah, I was surprised along the way. Some of the stuff I'd listened back and be like, oh, I really like that. I don't remember how to play it. I'll learn it. And then um, some of the stuff came rather quickly. Like, I felt like if I had to finish an idea, and I gave myself an arbitrary timeline. I think I really started recording around late March, early April. And I said, like by July 4th, I want to be uh, mixing this thing, like almost done with mixing. So, having some sort of arbitrary deadline. I think I finished within like a day, like literally a day. And I think there's something about, you know, when you give yourself a deadline, you just find yourself like, it's like full up right to the deadline, never before, never after or something. And, uh, you know, another song, uh, I wrote a song called possessed on this album. Um, I wrote very quickly. I remember my son was on the couch, like watching cartoons or something. I had a guitar, you know, when my son went down and, uh, went, to sleep I, I ran downstairs to my upright piano and i learned it on the piano and then i um that was mainly why i called the song possessed because it was like the song just came out of nowhere and i forget who said it If i think it was potentially neil young um we talk a lot about this when we're writing them in your songs it's almost like you don't even feel like you're necessarily writing something and i think neil young it must have been Neil Young because it's just so cool. He said something really effective, like, you know, when you're um, listening to static on a radio and you start to turn the knob ever so slightly, um, eventually you start to hear the music, you know, coming from the station that has the strongest signal. And I feel like with songwriting, so much of it is that whether it's instrumental, whether it's classical, whether it's pop music, rock, whatever it might be, it just feels like you're almost not writing it. You're just listening and then you turn the knob and then the static starts to turn into an idea. And, um, sort of a roundabout way that this song Possessed got written was that I guess my mind was just totally clear and spaced out of all thoughts. And this, the song popped into my head and, um, it was cool. I mean, and it's kind of crazy and scary and exciting that, you know, a song idea can change your life. And I'm not saying Possessed is going to change my life, but I'm just saying in general, just the notion of the idea that. As an artist, you could write a song idea in less than, like, five seconds, and it could literally change the rest of your life. I mean, if you're Jack White, and I read a cool story where Jack White wrote that bass line to Seven Nation Army at a soundcheck in Australia, and I think he came, like, boom, 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 boom. And he, I think he asked, like, a sound guy or someone else, at the, you know, they were checking, like, do you think that's cool? And the guy was like, yeah, I don't know, it's pretty cool. And I think Jack <laughs> White was like, I think... I think Jack White said something like, I think that's cool. I'm going to remember that. And then, you know, maybe that, maybe that baseline came out of him in like 10 seconds or less. And then that, you know, changes the course of history (laughs) or changes the course of the rest of your life. So, um, songwriting is a very, uh, it's a funny thing. Cool. Dude. Uh, thank you so
0: much for your time. We covered a shit ton of stuff. Anything you want to add? I did not ask you about.
1: No, this was great. Really different, really unique. And, uh, this was great chatting with you again.
0: Hopefully we get to see you back in the States sooner than later. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, man. Have a good one. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Steve Bolton. You've been listening to My Turning Point with special guest Jeremiah Freitz of the Lumineers. I belong
1: you. You belong with me. you my sweetheart. I belong with you. You belong with me.